Welcome to the Ab Initio podcast series, a Bankless Legal Guild production. If you are a lawyer, accountant, or tax professional, you're likely getting an increased number of questions from clients about cryptocurrencies, DAOs, and the blockchain in general. The purpose of this podcast is to help you answer these questions by having our established expert guests discuss current legal issues and cases on a regular basis. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be regarded as legal or financial advice. And now your host, Mike Rabinovich, aka Comeback Kid on Discord. In this episode, I speak with Lori Stein of McCarthy Tetro, one of Canada's oldest and most prestigious law firms, where she's co-head of the FinTech Group and a partner in the firm's business law group. We talk about the advice she gives clients transitioning from Web 2 to Web 3, her experience with Ontario's fintech regulatory sandbox, innovative structures for DAO legal wrappers, and much more. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Bankless DAO Legal Guild podcast, Lori. It's great to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'd like to begin by asking you to share with our listeners the trajectory of your legal career, where you started, and your current role today. Sure. So I, I started, I graduated law school in 20, 2001 and went into private practice. At, I joined a big law firm on Bay Street and started just doing a variety of different corporate and securities law matters. And I started focusing on uh, sort of securities, regulatory, capital markets work fairly early on, um, and also work with public investment funds. At that time, exchange-traded funds were just starting to take off. And I kind of came in fairly early on in that in that space and got familiar with investment funds and investment management and the sort of unique regulatory issues that arise in that area. And so when I first encountered digital assets, crypto, in particular Bitcoin, it was within that context. And it was in 2017, when a sort of innovative investment management client of our firm proposed to launch a public investment fund that would provide passive exposure to Bitcoin and list that fund on the Toronto Stock Exchange. What piqued your interest in terms of continuing to develop your practice in this vertical as opposed to some of the other ones that you could have worked on? Well, working on that file and learning about how digital assets are different than traditional securities in terms of how they're traded, how they're held, the unique risks associated with the assets, and the sort of explosive technological development and creativity was really invigorating for me. I've been, as I mentioned, working with institutional investment managers and primarily the hedge fund industry for many years. And it's a very well-lawyered area. There are lots of expertise. There are lots of great lawyers practicing in that area. And there's a pretty well-trodden path towards achieving the objectives of those clients. Once I started uh, looking at digital assets, um, the problems became a lot more complicated. The answers weren't clear. And I was willing to think about those complex questions and try to be creative. And I found it very rewarding to do that and to connect with the clients in a way that I hadn't experienced in the more traditional investment management practice. 
Do you see a trend in your Web2 clients base looking to migrate to Web3? Yes, especially over 2021 was when the clients first started coming and talking about that. So these would be clients that had like some kind of software as a service type of business, an online platform, B2B or B2C. And we're trying to figure out how to transition to a decentralized model, introduce a token, um, you know, move from move from proprietary IP to open source IP and really ultimately the clients that I've been talking to in this area really want to figure out how to set up and operationalize a DAO to be the steward of the technology that they've developed and and again sort of use a token maybe multiple tokens governance tokens NFTs as part of the way that the clients interact with the users of their technology. Do you find the trend to be industry specific or across the board in your client base? Well, right now, the clients, I I have three projects right now that are in the mode of transitioning from web two to web three. And all of them are in, I mean, they're already all online web-based applications. And just thinking about the trends, all of them have very large and I would say retail in quotes, consumer users that are using their technology all the time um, and that have more traditional um, structures, compensation structures, including advertising and subscription fees and are looking to break that model and, and give the participants and users of their technology more skin in the game, um, if you will, by, by incorporating tokens. That's a great segue to my next question. Three of the more common issues we get inquiries about in the Bankless Legal Guild are legal wrappers, tokenization, and governance. Which of these do you see most often in your practice? And what is the approach that you take in addressing them? Okay, so I mean, we can let's talk about all three of those topics. I think that they're all interrelated and that generally speaking, and we're talking about these Uh, tech developers that want to migrate from web two to web three or want to launch a web three based protocol or application. And they're really grappling with all of those issues together. But, uh, and and I would, I would link the governance and wrappers very closely together. And then tokenization, I think is a little bit different. So I'll just talk about tokenization first, because that term to me implies taking a real world asset or a physical asset or some kind or could be a digital asset and tokenizing it it's like in a fractionalizing kind of way and that's something that i've had a number of clients and prospects inquiring about over the past couple of years and um i tokenizing real estate tokenizing collectibles those types of things some tokenizing jet planes um and to me, and I guess from my securities regulatory background that I have, there are a lot of risks associated with tokenizing real world assets, especially because in my experience, the proposal to tokenize also usually comes hand in hand with facilitating secondary market trading. So um, I have tended to advise relatively conservatively on those types of projects. Um, but using digital tokens in the economy of a protocol or application, I I don't think it's the same as tokenizing 
Um, tokenized to me implies taking something that wasn't a token and making it into a token. Whereas when we talk about, when you talk about the other two topics, which is governance and legal wrappers and, you know, tokens representing rights to participate in a decentralized autonomous organization, that all is a, sort of the other topic, which I do think, I really do believe that conceptually, decentralized governance of certain kinds of protocols and technologies is an objective that is really worth pursuing. And there is a ton of creative energy that is being applied to this issue by lawyers and others all over the world trying to figure out what the right structure is, what, how this can work. And it's, that I, it's probably the most creative and, and exciting part of my practice. And there are no clear answers, obviously. But, but being a lawyer, I definitely lean towards the, the view that a DAO ought to have a legal wrapper. It ought to be a legal entity. Maybe not, maybe not for all purposes, but certainly for the purposes of limiting the liability of the members and also ensuring that taxes are being paid in a jurisdiction and that rights and obligations are appropriately being discharged. And that's about, you know, controlling liability and also compliance with law. Um, those are important to me as a lawyer. So I am really following all of the leaders that are looking at different options. I recently listened to a really interesting podcast where Miles Jennings was talking about uh, the UNA and um, I and I, I was looking at the purpose trust that Drew Hinkies developed um, for Terra. And in Canada, we are actually looking at potentially using um, uh, the co-op law in Canada. There are there are co-op statutes that have been adopted in every province and also federally that are quite similar and that actually provide a fairly flexible legal structure for co-ops that I think marries quite well onto the purposes and ethos of some types of DAOs. And so I'm actually pretty deeply engaged in a couple of projects that are looking at the synergies there. And I'm optimistic, actually, that there will be at least one DAO launched as a Canadian co-op in 2022, hopefully two, but at least one. So it's pretty exciting. Let's delve deeper into that, Lori. What do you think makes the co-op structure uniquely suitable to a DAO? What aspects of it? So conceptually, and in, in Canada, and it's really Western Canada is where there's a very strong co-op culture. The co-ops, and also there's quite a bit of it also in Quebec, and it really emerged from the agricultural industry. So groups of producers of agricultural products getting together to invest collectively in um, equipment and um, marketing and other kind of joint utilities that could be used to serve the needs of all the members. And there, was, there were real economic benefits to the members of participating in the co-op, but the co-op itself was not a for-profit, was, was not a, a, the co-op itself didn't run a profit. It really was run by the, and this is still, still exists, it is run by the members to, you know, jointly use these utilities to pursue each member to pursue its own objectives and, and for its own purposes. So it's this really interesting combination of 
collective action using certain types of, of commonly owned utilities, but for different purposes among the members. And the co-op structure in particular that's available through the Canadian co-op statutes, at least in some provinces, contemplates multiple classes of shares. There are membership shares and there are also investment shares. And it's possible to have different kinds of members that are participating in the co-op for different reasons. So it's a very flexible structure. And also, and really the, one of the main reasons I started looking at co-ops is um, in certain provinces, there's a blanket exemption from the prospectus requirements for distributions of co-op membership shares. There are caps on how many uh, how many members you can re can rely on that exemption and how much capital can be raised for the co-op. But the fact that there are exemptions from the prospectus requirements that, it, that exist already that we could use to issue some co-op interests and then build upon that potentially through um, engagement with the securities regulators, uh, that path is very attractive to me because it, there's a, a nice precedent that we can use and demonstrate value and then have potentially a, a really meaningful and productive conversation with the regulators about potentially expanding the scope of those exemptions. That's, that's a very interesting perspective. What I wonder about is how does the legal wrapper work in the context of a co-op? Well, I, I, I don't want to call it a legal wrapper because a co-op is, co is, a, is a company and it's created by articles and memorandum of association and bylaws, just like, just like any for-profit company. And it's managed by a board. And usually there's a requirement and the co-op statute that I'm looking at, you need to have three initial members and three directors. And usually the initial members are the, like it's the same group or the members would appoint each a director. Um, but the it's very flexible governance structure. So um, you the members of the co-op can have whatever voting rights and whatever economic rights are prescribed in the articles and the bylaws. And so it, I think it's more than just a wrapper. Like, and I know that, you know, when we talk about, I, I've heard the word wrapper used for when you're using an LLC or when you're using a, um, a legal entity for a specific purpose within a DAO. For the projects that I'm working with, we're, we're sort of starting with the co-op structure and we are certainly contemplating that participation in governance decisions within the co-op will be broader than just the directors of the co-op, but the members, which will have shares, um, will all be able to participate in governance decisions. And so it's not as that's why I'm not really calling it a wrapper because there isn't really a need to layer on a legal entity on top of a much broader and more uh, disparate and diverse group of members because at least as we're contemplating and it's still in the experimental stages, we're envisioning a situation where it's very easy to become an, a member of the co-op and a member of the DAO and those two things would be, would be interchangeable. Um, and it's very, it'll be very easy to participate in collective decision-making for a number of reasons relating to, you know, the, the tools that are going to be available to members. So it's beyond just, or to me, I, I feel that the word wrapper kind of isn't necessary, isn't necessarily, um, well suited to what, to this vision that we have, which is still a vision. We're still in the process of setting it up, but that's sort of how, how we're envisioning it. That sounds super interesting, and I'd love to follow up on that. 
Um, stepping back a bit, what key themes in the Canadian regulatory space do you see for the rest of 2022? I'm specifically looking at NFTs, DAOs, and perhaps even the evolution of the Howey test and its Canadian cousin, the Pacific Coast Coin Exchange. Well, so in Canada, our regulators have been very focused on intermediaries. They've been less focused on the Howey test and identifying investment contracts and going after issuers of tokens or NFTs. Um, that really hasn't been the regulatory approach that's been taking it, taken in Canada. They've really, um, the Canadian security administrators have actually created a regime for um, crypto asset trading platforms. So really what globally are known as crypto exchanges in Canada, we call crypto asset trading platforms, CTPs, and any centralized exchange. So an exchange that provides custodial services um, is under Canadian law considered to be a dealer in securities. And if the platform also runs a central limit order book or some other type of order matching engine, the platform is also considered to be a marketplace for securities. And that was based on guidance that was published in March of 2021. And after that, since that guidance was published, there have been seven crypto asset trading platforms that have been licensed under securities laws. And the strategy of the regulators by going after the intermediaries has been, one, they can, can, they can um, protect retail investors that are opening accounts on those platforms by imposing a similar investor protection regime to what exists for investors in the traditional securities markets. And two, they can put the, the regulators sort of put the risk back on the platform regarding this analysis of whether or not particular tokens that are being listed and sold on the platform are securities. The regulator isn't in the business of making those kinds of product determinations, or at least it shouldn't be. Um, and, and so as part of the licensing process, each of these, each of these registered crypto trading platforms and, you know, examples just in, like Wealthsimple was the first one. We have BitBuy, we have CoinSmart. Very recently, BitVo became registered in, in based in Alberta. CoinBerry is another one that's just being acquired and is going to become an affiliate of BitBuy. And um, so there's a whole variety, and NetCoins, which is owned by a public company based in British Columbia. So that's the group of them. And they've all agreed in the terms and conditions of their orders with the securities regulators that they will not list any tokens for sale that are themselves securities or derivatives. And the platform describes a know your product process that it, that it goes through to do that analysis. And the platform also agrees but if a determination is made by any jurisdiction, a regulator or court in any competent jurisdiction, that a token that's listed on their platform is a security or a derivative, they will delist that token. And there are a number of other terms and conditions that are similar to that, that are designed to ensure that these platforms aren't, aren't distributing sort of really questionable sh tokens issued by um, it's high risk High, issue from high-risk projects. So that's really been the approach that's been taken by our securities regulators. And it's been quite effective. And there are, as I mentioned, there are a bunch of platforms that are regulated. But when you ask, the reason I've explained all of this is because you were asking about trends for next year. So the trend, though, is there's a, still a challenge because even though there is a group of Canadian platforms that have all gotten licensed, 
There are still many platforms, including large, well-known global platforms that are offering uh, services to Canadians that are not yet licensed. And so there's a very big unlevel playing field issue that is really putting a lot of pressure on the Canadian securities administrators right now. So how that conversation evolves is something that I'm closely watching, and that's really going to be a trend um, for 2022, because right now it seems like there's a two, two-tiered system for the Canadians and the non-Canadians, and that is going to change. Um, and you had talked about NFTs. So another trend relating to these intermediaries is that most of these crypto asset trading platforms also want to offer NFT marketplaces or NFT platforms. And they either already are doing that or they're contemplating doing that. And they, they will set up a separate uh, affiliate to run those marketplaces, taking the position that the NFTs are not securities or derivatives. So, and, and therefore do not fall under the purview of the securities regulators. And you know, as you know, a similar analysis needs to be done of every NFT because some NFTs have very, very low to no securities regulatory risk and others have a very high degree of securities regulatory risk. So I think that that conversation is also a big trend that we're going to see amongst the market participants and, and, among, and at, the, at the regulatory level. Speaking of regulators, what has your experience been with Ontario's regulatory sandbox? specifically when it concerns complexity, cost, and the impact of its decisions? The regulatory sandbox, the, the group of, of lawyers and accountants that is staffed the OSC regulatory sandbox are very smart. They're very innovative. They're focused on, on trying to help fintech businesses to launch novel products with a reduced regulatory burden. And uh, they have thrown support behind a few projects and are continuing to do so. Um, and, then I, and I've worked with a couple of them. I think that the challenge that, is fit, that they face at the launch pad is that in order to get buy-in to grant exemptive relief from whatever securities regulatory requirement is, is sort of... Um, create posing impediments, like for example, the dealer registration requirement or the prospectus requirement. Um, the terms and conditions that leadership at the securities regulator want to impose, all from a very well-intentioned place of investor protection and fair and efficient capital markets, end up making the approved exempt business model very restrictive, very narrow. At least this is what's happened in the past. And so there haven't been any big success stories, really, where, you know, in reliance on this type of relief, a novel um, issuer has been able to achieve, you know, large, sort of a large scale uh, business objective. Now, I, I, there are exceptions to that. Like, for example, Wealthsimple's original order for its crypto trading platform was processed through the launchpad. So that was a real success. And similarly, 3IQ, when 3IQ first got approval um, to offer a crypto hedge fund, so in the private markets, this was back in 2017, the launchpad was also involved. So there have been some market participants that have had some success with the launchpad. But more recently, um, what, what, what I've seen is that the restrictions that are placed on the businesses because of this desire to really 
put them pretty closely within the existing regulatory framework with very, very limited exceptions have created some challenges to, for the actual like economic success of the project that is trying to raise capital in reliance on the exemption. And I'm optimistic that that will change. Um, the OSC launch pad last year became part of the OSC Office of Innovation. They have they brought in some new leadership there, some really talented people at the securities regulator. Um, and of course, Ontario does have a mandate for supporting innovation. So, and, and as I said, like all of my dealings with staff, um, people are positive, people are wanting to help, they're solutions oriented. It's just that it is challenging, especially uh, not only getting leadership on board in Ontario, but then also having to have these discussions with the rest of the Canadian securities administrators if the applicant wants to offer their product or services in provinces other than Ontario. So the, the, the provincial system also creates additional complexity in that regard. Based on your experience, what advice would you offer to a prospective applicant for an exemption? I mean, I think that the, the key that it, you're talking about, like sort of a, within the launch pad world. Yes. I think that the most important thing that I find with the early stage projects is they need to be able to articulate a clear objective of what they actually want to do. What and what is engaging securities regulatory requirements, because you can't get relief from a requirement if it's not clear why the requirement applies. So a lot of projects go in at a very early stage and they say, you know, we want to issue a token, we want to issue an NFT that's going to represent X and, you know, we think it might be a security, so we want relief. And, and the reason that our project is meaningful and worthwhile is for whatever reason. And so the launch pad will be like, oh yeah, that sounds like a meaningful and worthwhile project and we would be supportive of granting you relief. But then you go one stage further of like, okay, well, really, what is this token that you want to issue? Really, what is this project? And it's very, very early stage, very high level, white paper, half-baked. And so you can't actually get exempt of relief without having a very clear and coherent and cogent story in your relief application. So it's that part of it where working with a lawyer and not just a lawyer, but also, you know, business advisors and, and uh, venture capitalists that have experience to help to really hone in on what your actual business model is. Um, and that sometimes can take months and months to do, of months and months of iterating. And there are a lot of what technologists call pivots, where they, you're going down one path and then you talk to a potential con- a, a potential investor or you talk to a potential um, you know, partner and they make a suggestion, oh, you should try this. And then all of a sudden they come back and they're like, oh, now we're thinking about doing this. And so those types of conversations can go on for a very long time. And it's challenging. You, know, you lose momentum, you lose the attention of the launch pad, and it, it can get to be a little bit uh, circular. I think that's great advice. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Another topic that there's a fair bit of discussion about are KYC criteria in the accredited investor exemption in the context of, do we need to modernize them? And does something like the accreditor investor exemption impact the quality of investment opportunities for people that could not be considered accredited investors, but certainly have the knowledge to make a proper decision as to whether to invest? What's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's a great question. And that's part of the reason that I've been exploring the co-op structure and the co-op exemption is because it's not restricted to accredited investors. Anybody can rely on that co-op exemption to invest up to $10,000 in a co-op. And to me, that's a very democratic approach. Um, I do think that the, that the financial thresholds for the accredited investor exemption are super antiquated in Canada. Um, I've be, and, and there, there are other ways, there are other exemptions that I, I've become aware of, like in, in, I think it's in the EU, I think it's under MIFID. I, I can't remember what regime it is, but they have this concept of like a sophisticated investor that really just demonstrates an understanding of the market. And that alone, without meeting any specific finite, you know, net asset or income tests, qualifies an investor um, for a, a, even a higher level than an accredited investor like exemption for more of like an institutional uh, type of exemption. And to me, in this world, especially when so much of the risk around making these investments has to do with understanding the technology that you're investing in, it, that the grasp of the tech is really as relevant or a more relevant consideration than net income and net assets. And, and you know, the, the accredited investor exemption is a very paternalistic approach that is designed to protect retail investors from themselves. And if you talk to people that are in the crypto markets, they do not want that protection. And the regime as it exists doesn't really allow, it doesn't empower individuals to opt out and just say, we get it. Caveat emptor, we understand what the risks are. We want to make this exemption. And I, so I really do think that there needs to be some change there. Um, and I think that that's true in the U.S. as well, but it's certainly true in Canada. Couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think that I hope that regulators are listening and that uh, legislators are listening and, and they could really uh, you know, change that, uh, the formula that we look through at today, because I think it would make a huge difference in terms of providing economic and investment opportunities from people, as you say, that are simply not qualified according to the exemption itself, to be in the market right now. The other real challenge with the, with reliance on those exemptions is that they only, even if you can rely on the accredited investor exemption and or, for example, the offering memorandum exemption in Canada, um, it, only, uh, it will only apply to the primary distribution of the security. It won't allow for any secondary market trading. Um, and our rules are particular, are, are actually more challenging in Canada than in the U.S. because in the U.S. basically you you wait 12 months and you can sell your the security that you acquired under an exemption. In Canada, we don't have that sort of 12 month seasoning period um, unless we have a four month seasoning period, but the security needs to be listed on a recognized exchange or marketplace in order for the seasoning period to kick in. So that's another area where it's a real challenge just because of the nature of secondary markets in crypto, um, which is part of the reason that, you know, the, that, that sort of the crypto markets are different and more efficient and, and also obviously riskier. So I do think that there is definitely a role for securities regulation. I'm not suggesting that the Wild West and let everybody do whatever they want is the right approach, far from it. But I do think that really constructive conversations amongst the regulators entertaining ideas like the Hester versus Safe Harbor um, and some of the approaches that are being taken in, in jurist in Europe and in Asia, rather than just keeping to try to fit the square peg into the round hole, 
um, is, is going to be the best way for Canadian regulators to really foster innovation in this country. I think your suggestion of letting the potential investor sign off and says, I know that this is risky. I know what I'm getting into. I have this level of knowledge is a really is a really smart approach and I think should not be too difficult to implement. But but we shall see. I want to switch gears to a topic that doesn't get discussed as much in, in our industry. And this is the mental game and life balance, as I call it. Uh DeFi, DAOs, crypto moves so fast these days, sometimes daily, sometimes even hourly. You got a busy practice. How do you balance it? How do you maintain uh, you know, a, a place where you can be a peak performer and do everything else that you want to do uh, on a daily basis? What, what does a typical day at the office look like for you, Lori? I have to be honest with you, I have not figured this out really yet. I, I've, I've gotten better at it, but as my practice has developed, first of all, it's, as everybody in crypto knows, it's just extremely addictive. Like, you just want to be reading and listening and absorbing what's going on at all times. So it's hard to just tune out of it. And, and a lot of it, you know, when, for me, when I'm passively absorbing information, I don't consider that to be work. Um, I, I just consider that to be like, I'm educating myself and I, I, I really want to know, like I'd be doing that even if I wasn't, if it wasn't benefiting my clients, but it still takes up a tremendous amount of time. Um, on the, on the actual work front, I, I find that I'm, I'm never, I'm not one that's able to say, okay, I'm going to work like 10 or 11 hours a day every day. And I'm going to have like a routine. What I tend to do is every two to three days. I end up staying up really late. Like last night, I think I was up till 3 a.m., cleaning out my inbox, getting all of my sort of administrative instructions out to my assistant to open new files, making sure that I have meetings set up with people that I want to talk to. And I find if I wait more than two business days to do that kind of inbox cleanup, it gets to be completely overwhelming and I like dysfunctional, like I, I become paralyzed. So I try to do that, you know, for every 48 hour full inbox cleanup. And then the other thing that is really important and that I'm getting better at and I'm really, uh, you know, I, I recently moved law firms to a firm called McCarthy Tetro and um, really finding associates and teams of people that are really interested in doing the work and bringing them in on files and delegating and giving people autonomy to, you know, demonstrate the initiative that they can take and demonstrate their potential and connect directly with the clients um, obviously is helpful because then I can provide more services to more clients, see more things on a higher level. Um, and, and that's really the only way to do it. Like you just, I, just, I certainly cannot do it all myself. Um, but the reality is when I'm doing some kind of deep regulatory analysis, like I recently prepare, I recently did very extensive submissions about like a DeFi wallet app um, and whether it is or is not, you know, engaging securities laws. It was, I, I, there was nothing that I could do other than just stay up for like a, an unseemly long number of hours and just write the whole thing. Like I almost feel like it's my version of coding. Like you just get so into the analysis. You're so deep. You can't stop. I, I was working with, you know, the software developers at the, at the client and learning so much like, watching, you know, trades getting settled. And it was so stimulating and invigorating. And the work product ended up being, I think it's, it's one of the things I'm so, so proud of. 
and it's worth it. So you have those like bursts of like creative energy when you're like at your peak. And then that burst, you can, it can sustain you for quite a while because like that analysis is now going to be, I, I'm going to be able to use that analysis in a whole bunch of different contexts. What advice would you give someone just beginning their legal career that you wish you had known when you started? I think what I would advise somebody, you know, early on is you're not supposed to know anything. Nobody expects you to know anything. Ask lots of questions, follow your curiosity, take initiative and, you know, find good mentors because the way to become, the way that I became a good lawyer was observing and listening and learning from unbelievable senior practitioners. I, I don't, I could not have done it. I, I, I hear stories, especially in crypto law about people that go out on their own and start their own practice at a very early, early stage. And it is so entrepreneurial and I respect it so much. It is that, that was not my path, especially sort of on, if you're, if you are interested in like a regulatory practice, there's a whole history that is very relevant to what it is we're doing today. And so finding those people and senior people love to talk about what they do. They love to share their expertise. They're happy to do it and they'll give you their time. And it's reciprocal because then you're helping them do their work for their clients. So finding those relationships, I think, is a real key to success. Are there any books or other media you would recommend to help other professional service providers understand crypto, DeFi, and DAOs? You know, I, I'm not much of a reader of books. I have to be honest with you. I'm much more of a, I, I, I like to get my information in more bite-sized chunks. So I really have become a big fan of podcasts and, and sort of crypto Twitter and, and um, following links, obviously, and doing deeper dives into things. But I, I find like, for example, if I want to learn about like a, a, a protocol and how it works, like I've found great kind of YouTube videos that like the developers Put up themselves and I, I just there's so many resources that the developers are are putting on are putting online and I think it's just following the going down those rabbit holes and and watching that stuff and, and getting absorbed in it and following one to the next so I can't really identify one particular resource but that's how I, I do my learning so for my last questions which we ask every one of our guests I'm gonna ask you to gaze into the future and tell me what you think the crypto industry will look like five years out? Well, I, I do think that it's going to be much more institutionalized. I mean, we've seen that a lot in the past couple of years. We've seen institutional grade custodians that are getting licensed under, you know, prudential regulation. And I think that that's going to be moving up, up the, the ladder to all of the exchanges and other kind of intermediaries. I think so. I think the markets are going to be a lot more regulated. I think there will still be unregulated markets. And I hope that sort of at the, and I, I think that the DeFi protocol layer um, needs to stay, should stay unregulated if, if it's truly decentralized. So I think that that's really the challenge. That's the challenge for crypto is like you, we, there are lots of claims of decentralization that are being made right now. But then when you actually peel back the curtain, you identify points of centralization that really undermine the argument. So the challenge for crypto is to really decentralize those points of decentralization. And it's those, the successes are going to come from that, from there. And sort of those, the real kind of base infrastructure layer that's going to survive is the one that actually really 
meets those claims of decentralization. And I do believe that's going to happen. Um, I personally do have a bias towards the Ethereum network. I just do. Like I, I know I've, I'm familiar with all of the other ones that have come up since, and I respect a lot of what's happening there. But I do, I do feel like Ethereum got a really good head start, and they still have so many great people working on on that network. And I, I, I so I, I, I think that there's a good chance that it's going to be the incumbent. But who knows? I mean, it could be another one. But I think it's whichever one succeeds at decentralization. Um, first and really can demonstrate that in a way that is compelling for courts, securities regulators, lawyers, because it makes it that we really can argue that these things are not securities, these are commodities and and support those arguments. That's really good insight, Lori. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. We much appreciate it. My pleasure. We want to thank Bankless Dow for supporting this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share on your favorite podcast streaming platform and Twitter at BanklessDAO. Questions, comments, suggestions? Please join us in the BanklessDAO Discord server and post on the general legal channel or DM our host, Mike Rabinovich, at ComebackKid. Till next time.